everyone. I've had a little uh, cold, so my voice has dropped a couple octaves, which might enrich your enrich your sense that it's the you know God's booming voice. You know, might help you. I don't know. Anyway, but uh, this morning uh, we're in John 16, and I, I'm thinking about the Christian life as a whole. And if I were to describe it, I would describe it as one big adventure, like a lifelong adventure. And uh, I don't know if you are aware of this, but on Amazon, there are like 33 million book titles that you can purchase and they'll distribute and manage that, 33 million titles. And at the end of the Gospel of John, what does it say, John 21, 25? It says, uh, if everything were to be written down that Jesus said and did, not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written and uh, we're kind of like the Oprah Book Club, but we never move beyond one book, you know. Uh, we'll never exhaust all the wisdoms and treasures of knowledge that are found in Christ. And uh, so it's like an adventure. Uh, now, as we sit here, the human race is on the brink of a new revolution, a whole new revolution. And so throughout time, throughout human history, there's been these different revolutions of technology and whatnot, and, and one of those was the arrival of the steam engine, and then later the gasoline engine, and you think of how that invention forever transformed everything around the world. And then after a while came the, the revolution of electric power, all right, and electricity. I mean, what would your life be without electricity? You can't even... You don't even want to think about it, right? And then came the digital internet revolution. And probably in the 80s is when that really took hold. But you literally wear the World Wide Web on your wrist. You know, I did for a while, but the battery, you know, it kept wearing down the battery and then it was this much to replace. I was like, I'm going back to analog. I'm going to go back to the old stuff. But, but think about that, how hyper-connected and hyper-entertained we are because of the digital and internet revolution. Uh, but right now, we are on the brink of a whole other revolution. And people will look back to our day and they will notice that there is a revolution taking place. There is a cyber revolution. And it's already started. And uh, we might be kind of late to the party even talking about it. But more specifically, the birth of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence has read the 33 million book titles on Amazon.com. Think about that. Uh, there are a trillion or more pages, web pages on the internet. Uh, there are more web pages than your brain and mine has neurons. Uh, if it hasn't already, and I think it probably has, artificial intelligence has the ability to read the internet as if it were a book. And I mean the whole internet. Artificial intelligence purports to know the mind of man. And it's being trained not just to think, but to outthink and outcreate and outsmart and even outman man himself. I'd written here, you know, within a few years that this would be true, but it's actually already true. You already interact with more artificial intelligence systems than you do fellow human beings. Uh, what may change is that when you, you know, call one of those 800 numbers trying to get help for your computer, instead of talking to someone from a foreign country and being frustrated with that, you might actually be talking to 
artificial intelligence, a voice that is listening and trying to understand, and it could be a computer trying to learn what you need, what it can do to help you out. That will be a whole new experience. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we were having lunch with Laura's parents, and I was trying to explain to them artificial intelligence. And uh, for giggles and laughs, uh, I pulled up a kind of a tamed down interface of artificial intelligence, uh, chat GPT or something like that. And I wrote, write me an original love poem for Lara. And so I was sitting there with her parents and I started just reading this thing, whatever it spewed out. But it re- wrote an original love poem for Lara from, you know, from AI. But anyway, it's pretty, pretty amazing. It was enough to make her ears turn red and to make her blush a little bit. She's like, stop, be quiet, stop reading that. And her parents were laughing. But, but, I, but I wrote in there, tell me Abraham Lincoln's view of God. And it gave a very impressive summation of Abraham Lincoln's view of God. I mean, it was impressive. So then I was like, wow. You know, and then I put, write an awesome sermon for me on John 16. And I mean, I didn't have to do anything this week. It is so cool. But, uh, but the, the fear of AI is that it might master the mind of man. It might actually master, crack the code of the way people think. But even if that happens, I don't think it will ever crack the spirit of man. It's the spirit of man that's really the problem there, the variable, the uncontainable. And, uh, and as incredible as it might be to think of cracking the, the mind or even the spirit of man, I'll tell you something AI will never be able to do, and that is crack the mind or the spirit of the living God. And that's why it will always be a limited technology, like every other technology. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. There is a boundary there that in order to know God, you have to have Uh, You have to know his spirit. You have to have his spirit. In 2 Corinthians 2.16, it says, Who has known the Lord's mind that somebody could instruct God? You know, we have such confidence in our technologies and and what they might be able to do. You know, uh, AI might even one day have the audacity to try to instruct God. Who knows? But in 2 Corinthians 2.16, it says, But we, you and me, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And it's that last part of verse 16 and John 16, all right, that I want to talk to you about. Because we are the beneficiaries of a revolution of a whole other order, not an industrial revolution with its offspring of of cyber and digital and internet and gasoline engines and electricity, not that kind of a revolution. We are part of a revolution that actually greatly precedes the Industrial Revolution and greatly exceeds the benefits and promises of even the cyber revolution. And it's called the spiritual revolution. The spiritual revolution, and that is the right terminology, the spirit-led revolution that was inaugurated at Christ's departure from earth. We are the beneficiaries of that revolution. It's the revolution that Jesus announced in John 16, 7. 
but not just there, but nevertheless, he says, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, It's for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And we saw this at the end of John 15 as well. John 15, 26. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. When I leave, there will be a spirit revolution, a spiritual revolution. I will spend, send the spirit of my Father, the spirit of the living God, not just to you, but as we saw earlier, into you. The spirit of truth with a capital T. The consular with a capital C. A consular helps you know your spirit and your mind, but also the spirit and mind of God. He's the teacher with a capital T. The helper with a capital H. Just think about it. The spirit of Christ will give you the mind of Christ. Through the spirit of Christ, we can query the mind of the Father himself. And the Father's love can be known in a profoundly new and fresh and transformative kind of way. There is a revolution of spirit that Jesus inaugurated upon his departure. So we can read all about the industrial eclipsing, digital eclipsing, even cyber eclipsing, spiritual revolution of Jesus in John 16. So I'd encourage you to Go ahead and look at that chapter with me this morning. John 16, find it in your Bible. Uh, find it on your app, your AI-powered app, whatever it is. John 16, I'll be honest with you. Just like it was a stretch for me to talk with Laura's parents and help them kind of get their mind around the revolution of, right? When I read this chapter, I feel it's a stretch for me to explain to you the profound nature of the spirit revolution that Jesus inaugurated. In a way, I have like a childlike understanding of it. In a way, I'm just at the front door of the whole thing, trying to comprehend it, trying to understand and and, and journey into it myself while inviting other people along for the ride. And so, uh, you know, there's an adventure here in this chapter that if you let your mind roam and let your imagination roam, you can really... I spent a lot of time here unpacking some of these things. But let me mention to you five points of revolution that the Holy Spirit brings into our world and into our lives as believers. First of all, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit bringing a revolution of light. A revolution of light. So at the beginning of John's gospel, uh, John 1, 5, we're told how the light of Christ shines in the darkness, but how the darkness can't extinguish it or overcome it. And so here's Christ. He comes into the world. His his words, his works, they're powerful, they're potent, and the darkness is just at a loss at what to do. And it tries to attack it. It tries to extinguish it. Uh, Some translations say that the darkness hasn't understood it. Either way, you see the situation. And John 3.19, Jesus says this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, 
But people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You either love the sun or you hate the sun. When he shines that light on your life and when you see and hear his words, you know, you're going to have a definite response. It's going to be one or the other thing. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. And a lot of it depends on who you are and where you are in your spirit and heart. John 3.20 adds an additional insight. Jesus says, everyone who does evil hates the light and they avoid it so that their deeds may not be exposed. They hate it and avoid it. Their issue is exposure. And so imagine how revolutionary it would be if despite man's discomfort and indeed his hatred of the light, God were to crank up the lumens of his light anyway. Not only did he do it with the law and with the Moses, not only did he do it with the prophets, not only did he send his son as a light to live out a life of grace and truth right in our midst, if the words and works of Jesus aren't enough of a, of a point of conviction and challenge to you or exposure, what if God were to crank it up even more? And that's exactly what Jesus says is about to happen. I will send my spirit into the world. Look at verse 10. You know, when I go, I'm going to send my spirit to you. I'm sorry, verse 8. Uh, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. Three categories of things there. Sin is because you've not believed in Jesus. He came, he testified, he exposed the truth and, and, uh, and you didn't believe. And righteousness because he is who he says he is. He's going back to the Father to reign at the, from the right hand of God and, and, and you've not accepted his lordship over your life. But also judgment because like the ruler of this age, you'll be held accountable and be judged at the end of the age along with the evil one. You know, every, every solid sentence has a clear subject, a clear verb, and a clear direct object. When he comes, the counselor, that's the subject. When he comes, the spirit of the living God, he will convict, verb, who? The world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. There are people that come along and they take the word world and they go, well, the world doesn't mean the world. And the cosmos doesn't mean the cosmos. And there's people that try to nuance away the full effect and impact of these words. The object of the Holy Spirit's convicting world isn't just some subset of believers or the chosen or the elect or, or some subcategory of whatever. It's the world. That what's happening in Christ in coming into the world, and then the, the, the Son sending the Spirit into the world, is going to be God cranking up the lumens of accountability for all men everywhere across all cultures to the ends of the earth. He will convict on a global scale human hearts in regards to sin righteousness and the coming judgment. Now, the willful and evil spirit of man may very well go on resisting the Holy Spirit and he does. But he won't be able to ignore him forever. And even more so, he certainly will not be able to escape his or her accountability before the living God. What excuse will a person have 
for rejecting the law, Christ, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The illumination of the Spirit of God renders all men without excuse. You know, you go to Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and we're told two things, that in the world God has revealed his righteousness, his light, his Christ, but God has also revealed his wrath. And the groups that are accountable are threefold. There are those who are godless, who just continually go from bad to worse, and you read about them in the beginning of chapter 1. They are without excuse because even the general revelation of God's divine nature and his power in creation is enough to hold them accountable and render them without excuse. Just at a minimum level. But think of how many lumens more than even natural revelation. God has cranked up the the light here, right, of exposure. There's a second category in Romans, and those are people who are moralists. These are the folks that say, I'm a good person, and I'm going to go to heaven, and I don't need to worry about anything, and and my works are going to be satisfactory to God on the day of judgment, and I'm fine. And Paul says, nope, you're showing contempt for God's kindness and mercy and grace if you think that way. But the third group is the religious man who thinks that because he has the law and uh, because he has Moses and whatnot and that he's in this place to teach and he's superior and better and, and more righteous than everyone. And Jesus says, none of you all are righteous. None, none of the categories of anybody is righteous. There's no one righteous except for one, and that's Christ. So the revolution of light is that the Holy Spirit is pouring on the exposure of man's true nature and the scope of his depravity and his need for God. And it's one of the most uh, powerful facts that the Holy Spirit drives home into the consciences of people. We have a leg up in our evangelism, in our ministry, by holding out the gospel to a world that's under conviction. Now, the Holy Spirit will do more. He will bring a revolution of truth, teaching, discipleship, pick your word, I put them all on there. You can pick one. I didn't know which one I liked the best. But verse 12, I still have many things to tell you, you know, but you don't have enough neurons in your brain and you don't have artificial intelligence to assist you. Uh, I have so many more things I want to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Your brains are fried. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he'll speak whatever he hears. He'll also declare to you what is to come, and he'll glorify me, because he'll take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That's why I told you he'll take from what is mine and declare it to you. In a little while, you'll no longer see me, and again in a little while, you'll see me. Now, imagine how revolutionary it might be. Not just that our sins get exposed, but imagine how revolutionary it would be that if under conviction we were to repent and we were to respond to God's spirit and bend our knee before God. And and imagine if God were to begin writing his law directly on our hearts and minds by his spirit. Would that not be revolutionary? Jesus says that time is now. I'm sending my spirit these are powerful words. I will, he, he will guide you. He will teach you. He will speak to you. 
He will declare. He will directly give you the things of the Father. He's not going to give you things in contradiction to the, 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 the scriptures or the mind of God or uh, to anything that he's taught, but he's going to give you these things. Uh, John 16 is the fulfillment of ancient promises that God made through the prophets regarding his Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't just pull this thing out of thin air and say, I'm sending my spirit. The prophets yearned for that day when God would send his spirit uh, on his people. Uh, Hebrews 10, 16 and 17 connects this promise with the, the ancient promises of the prophets. God says, this is a covenant I will make with them in the, after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their heart and I will write them on their minds and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Not only will the spirit convict, but he will bring forgiveness and cleansing and he will write and instruct and direct us uh, like directly in our hearts and in our minds. The spirit knows our hearts and minds. Now, where do we see this revolution afoot, this revolution of the spirit, teaching and leading and, and whatnot? Well, one of the places we see it immediately is in Acts chapter two, that you have this crowd that's gathered before the apostles and they proclaim Christ and we're told that the crowd was cut to the heart. They came under conviction. They believed what the apostles were saying about Jesus, that he'd come from God and that he'd return to God, and they believed. And they said, what should we do about this conviction? And the apostles said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Father, Son, uh, and, and be baptized, right, uh, for the forgiveness of sin and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the next step in this thing is after you come under conviction, you repent and you say, oh, I see, here's my sin, here's the stuff God's showing you, I see. But then you respond and you say, forgive me, cleanse me, teach me, lead me, guide me, right? What happens with the spirit revolution is Acts 2, 42 through 47. We're spirit-filled people, we see, begin spontaneously devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to one another in fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And in Acts 2.43, it says, everyone was filled with awe and wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. And all the believers, they came together and they held everything in common. They sold their possessions and properties and, and they distributed possessions to everyone as they had need. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And every day the Lord added to their number those daily who were being saved. This is what a spiritual revolution of conviction, light, and exposure of truth and discipleship looks like. If you haven't had the opportunity, you might say, well, Acts 2, that was way back then. What about our day? And what can God do in our day? You might go out and see the movie Jesus Revolution. If you want a picture of what God can do today, it looks exactly like Acts 2, 43 through 47. Go see the movie. 
What happens when the Spirit brings the people under conviction and they repent and respond and are baptized and invite the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in their lives and in their relationships? What might happen? Well, we don't have to imagine. It's right in front of us, staring at us. And it's, you know, uh, you got these hippies that are coming and they're like, hey, what about us, right? Yes, even the hippies, you know. So go watch the movie if you want to see a, a picture or an illustration of what God does and is doing. A revolution of teaching that God just puts it right on the hearts and minds and there's a transformation and change that happens. Another point of revolution with the Holy Spirit is what I'd call a revolution of hope and comfort. Verse 17. So the disciples are talking amongst each other and they're saying, what is this that he's telling us? He keeps saying that in a little while uh, we'll not see him, but then again in a little while we will see him. What is Jesus talking about? Uh, What does he mean that he's going to the Father? Verse 18. What is this that he's saying in a little while? You know, we don't know what he's talking about. You know, you just get this. Verse 19. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while, you'll not see me. And again, in a little while, you'll see me. You notice that that same statement is repeated like five times. I mean, it's just over and over. Because he's talking about resurrection and death. That he's going to die and they're not going to see him. And then something's going to happen and they're going to see him again. And they don't understand it. They don't understand the revolution that's about to occur. Verse 20. Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world's going to throw a party. They're going to rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. For example, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. I was talking to a mother this morning that has three children. And she was describing, I was mentioned in this passage, and I, she was describing C-section and uh, all, the, all the stuff that's involved and the pain and, and all the complications. And, and I was like, wow, and you have three children, right? Why would you go through that again if you knew what it was the first time? Why would you go through it a second time or even a third time? And this mother said, uh, because of the joy of what happens through it and after it. Jesus says she has pain because her time has come, but when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that they have that a child has been born into the world. And so you have sorrow now, Jesus says, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will be able to take away your joy from you. How revolutionary would it be were men to begin living in light of an eternal perspective? The first century woman, the mother, didn't just experience pain in childbirth. Far more often than even today, they would sometimes die in childbirth. What would you tell a mother that dies in childbirth? She goes through all this labor and all this pain and all this trouble and she seems to be denied the joy of seeing even her own child. What would you say to that mother? But what Jesus is saying here is that for those who believe, and that's very important, for those who repent, who come under conviction and respond and, and love the light instead of hating it and, and respond and, and invite God's, 
cleansing and forgiveness and, and filling of the Spirit. For those who believe, there will be great joy on the other side of all that pain and suffering and even death. Uh, the joy will so eclipse the pain that the pain will be little more than a faint blip of memory like what you see in childbirth. How revolutionary would it be in the face of death for the spirit to fill us with a transcendent, eternal kind of perspective and hope? You know, what if in the face of death we were to have a kind of transcendent love overtake us, that we would be willing to sacrifice even our life unto death for the good of others? What kind of transcendent love uh, might the spirit give us like that? Or joy, you know, from a worldly equation, it looks like life is being cut short of joy. But the Holy Spirit gives us a transcendent joy that even through death, there can be a joy that transcends, a peace that transcends, uh, that there can be patience and kindness and goodness and all these things. The Holy Spirit gives us a revolution, a transcendent perspective of hope and joy that transcends this timeline of this world, the events and circumstances, the pain and trials and sufferings of this world. We have joy and comfort ahead of us, no matter what's thrown at us. The Holy Spirit will bring a revolution of sonship, which is our identity, a, a revolution of prayer. Here's how they fit together. Verse 23, in that day you will not ask me anything. Truly I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've not asked for uh, nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. I've spoken these things to you in figures of speech, but a time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. On that day, you will ask in my name. And I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Verse 27 the Father himself loves you because you love me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and I've come into the world again. I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. How revolutionary might it be if every single barrier were removed between you and the Father, between you and God, every curtain torn, every veil removed, every mountain thrown into the sea, and, and, and you could approach the throne of God with every confidence, knowing not only that God would hear you, but that the Father actually loves you. You know, we think we go to the Father because the Son loves us, and on behalf of the Son, the, the Father, the Father loves you, Jesus says. I won't even have to ask on your behalf. The Father loves you. Your relationship with the Father is forever transformed, not through the, just the cross, but by my spirit. Uh, Romans 8, 14 through 17. Those led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received a spirit of adoption of whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if we're children, we're heirs. And if we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, right, if we suffer with him, we'll also be glorified with him. 
We have a complete change of standing and identity. We are sons and daughters. We are loved by the Father. Every barrier has been removed for us in prayer to come before the Father. Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, you have two prayer partners when you have, uh, when you, uh, are restored in your relationship with God. You have the Holy Spirit, but you also have the Son. But make no mistake about it, you are talking directly to the Father at that point. He loves you. If you love the Son, He loves you. Hebrews 4.16, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, go back and look at John 14. And look at what Jesus says about the power we will find in prayer to ask of the Father anything, anything he says, uh, that we'll be able to invite God to do in our lives and in our world, in our families, our marriages, our church, even greater things than the things we saw Jesus involved in. I mean, think about the Holy Spirit is going to have to teach us the implications that we are sons and daughters, that we are loved of God, and we have such direct and powerful access to the Father to ask anything. The Holy Spirit's going to have to mentor us in what that kind of prayer life needs to look like and how it can take shape and how we can lean into that more deeply. I am a student and learner on that adventure, right? Are you? But, but Spirit, teach us the implications of this prayer revolution, of this identity revolution. We're sons and daughters. The last point of revolution is that of peace and victory. Verse 29, the disciples say, uh, look, you're speaking plainly to us. You're not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus told them, do you now believe? You know, good, thumbs up, right? An hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own house and you will leave me alone. And yet I won't be alone because the Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. I mentioned the Industrial Revolution and all of its offspring earlier. And what is the promise of these different revolutions of technology that we experience throughout our lifetimes and, and beyond. Whether it's the revolution of the engine, whether it's that of electricity, a computer, artificial intelligence, the promise of technology is that it's supposed to bring us peace. It's supposed to bring peace to sinful man in some way. You know, I have peace because I have my cell phone and if there's trouble, I can take my cell phone and I can call. If I have a problem, I can pull it out and I can query Google and I can get, you know, a whole list of things. Well, artificial intelligence is going to just read your mind and tell you what you need to know, you know, so you won't have, have to type it in. But, but whatever, right? I have peace of mind 
because of all the technology around me. I was talking to an individual after first service that had a stroke, and he was out in the woods and 45 minutes away from anything. But, you know, through technology, they were able to get him to the hospital and give him a shot and do all the stuff he needed within three hours. And he was marveling at the technology that saved him from what would have been a debilitating situation to him in his health. It gave him peace of mind. And we got such great doctors and hospitals and, and technologies available when, when something does happen or we need help, right? The promise of technology is peace. But the other promise of technology, doesn't it seem to be more than that? The other promise of technology is that it seems to promise to defer death. That we have all these technologies, so we should be able to live better and longer than ever before. And technology says, you know, uh, we're going to kick problems down the road. We're going to kick the, the issue of your own mortality down the road. But, you know, ultimately, no matter what revolution of technology comes, sin and death are our mortal enemies. Technology can never conquer the spirit of man the rebelliousness of man, the hostility of man before God, it can never solve the evil, the sin, the, 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 the ill part of man. And it certainly will never conquer death itself. It might alleviate, it might defer, but it will not conquer. But what Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm going to go to the Father, I'm going to come back. I'm going to die And three days later, I'm going to be raised from the grave. And the reason that I'm going to be able to do that is because of the spirit of the living God. The spirit of the living God. The spirit revolution. A revolution of not just peace, but victory. Jesus says in this world, you'll have trouble, but I've overcome whatever trouble the world throws at you. If you'll trust me, you'll have peace, but more than that, victory. Verse 7, nevertheless, I'm telling you, it's for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. We are part of a revolution that the world most needs. And the question for you this morning is, are you part of that revolution? Have you believed on Jesus? Have you repented of what he's convicted you of and invited not just his washing, but his forgiveness and his power to transform your life? Have you stepped into obedience and and are you inviting that spirit to bear out his fruit in your life and to be changed forever? You know, Jesus said that we must be born of water and spirit to benefit from this kingdom of heaven. You must be born of water and spirit. The spirit must achieve for us what we cannot achieve for ourselves. If you're ready and at a place where you're ready to repent and to believe on Jesus and to be washed in baptism and and receive that gift, uh, we want to come alongside you this week. Uh, You can go under the app and communicate with us. You can go back to these tables. At the end of the service, you can grab a pastor at the end of the service. But it's time for you to join the revolution that began, that Jesus inaugurated. You know, at the bottom of the sermon, just for fun, I wrote, write that sermon, AI, write that sermon, you know. Let's pray. Dear Father, 
Your Holy Spirit has given us your mind, shown us your heart this morning. And we invite your spirit to create a revolution in us and in this place and in this church and in our world. And we invite you to do what you said you would do. And we ask that by your spirit you convict us and expose or show any hurdle or barrier that we've thrown up in our spirit of resistance to you. May we cast that aside and bend our knee and just welcome you to do in our lives and marriages and families and church and world what you do. Do here what you did in Acts 2. Do here what uh, you did with the hippies in the Jesus revolution. Do in us that which glorifies you. That's our prayer this morning as we worship. We ask that of you, Father, because you love us. Amen.